Woo! And now you should show up. All right. Higher levels. You should um, make sure you're not ooh, going in the red. You are right. I need to go check that. Where do you? Oh, man. They changed the uh, UI a little bit. Hang on. Hang on. Give me a second. I'm just like backing off a little bit, so I'm not so red. Sorry. Okay. The musical portion of the podcast brought to you by Carrie's Impromptu Acapella. Okay, I think I got myself to a point where I'm not in the red anymore. That's good. So yellow's okay, but red bad, yeah. We would definitely want to talk about Japan today instead of the... the. We're going to put the Memory Lane video game podcast off for one episode or something? Yeah, actually, we should probably do a little bit more research because it should be interesting to come up with. Um, we actually could do, like, multiple parts of that because there's, just, like, there's, in, in my mind, there's, like, just so much ground to cover. But anyway. Fair enough. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah, at least have a, a roadmap. Yeah, actually, um, actually, when we get to the, remind me, when we get to the uh, the video game pot, like episode, um, I got a really interesting story that was told to me by our, our friend Joe um that is directly related to that statement right there so okay so um i will yeah actually that that is a good thing we'll have to talk about it because he was in the gaming industry um yeah i mean he was up into the game industry until actually he still is in the gaming industry oh really so joe went from teaching english in japan to going to work for blizzard and by the way, if, if you're listening, Joe, Joe, I'm talking about a friend of ours, Joe Holly, um, who lived in Japan for a couple of years. Uh, we all like our first night in Japan when we came on the jet program, Joe greeted us and said, all right, we're going to go to hit some bars and, and tear it up. And we proceeded to walk all over Shinjuku in a single night. And it was wonderful and exhaustive and and fantastic. But anyway, Joe is an amazing guy. And also, we should mention that his method of transportation to get there that fool rode his bicycle from Osaka to Tokyo on along the coast, no less, which means I believe he, he literally did he did he not go around the southern tip of Wakayama? If he followed the coast, he would have had to. Um, if he didn't follow the entire coast and did the smart thing that I would have done would have been to like cut across like over Wakayama and not go through all the mountains. But oh, I wouldn't cut through Wakayama either because it is nothing but mountains. I would have say probably go up through the Kyoto Valley. There's there the uh, sorry the uh, Yodo River Valley, and then the kind of head there, head towards Nagoya. There's, there's kind of, there's obviously like a mountain passage route that the Japanese have been using for, you know, centuries. So, but knowing Joe, he probably would have gone the whole way because he'd be like, well, you know, if I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to like do it. Do it. I mean, the coastal road would be, in a way, the more traditional route. So if he wanted to do it that way, but I believe he mentioned it was something like 900 kilometers. Uh, I'm, I can't believe I remember that number, but. Uh, and it took like, I want to say it took him like a week or more. So the numbers kind of work out. Yeah. yeah I think he, he just went the whole coastline. So, cause it would have, if he'd gone following more or less the straight route, uh, it would have been half the distance I'm guessing. So, cause I know it's only like 350 miles, I think, uh, from here to Tokyo. It's like about 500 kilometers. So. So he doubled it. So there you go. Anyway, we're, we're a little off track, but we should get into it. You're listening to News from Tomorrow. Welcome to News from Tomorrow. I'm your host, Kaylee Babcock. 
And I'm a sidekick, Gary Spillman. Well, and we're co-hosting. You know, I don't know. Although, I, if I get to run around yelling spoon, that's cool. Hey, yo. Spoon! You get to, that means you got to yell not in the face. Mm. Anyway, but I'm bunch. You have to explain the joke. It's not funny. We're making way too many cross-references at this point. I'm, I'm going like full Johnny Carson. You're like full tick. But either way, it works. We're, we're both geeks like that, so it's cool. Yeah, yeah. Welcome aboard. All right, so buckle up, people. All right, so uh, first of all, we actually have some uh, some news in the uh, news from tomorrow vein. Uh, first hey. of all, as you said, there was a little thing that happened recently, something with the, the, the football. The uh, Are you ready for some foobah? Yeah. yeah. That thing. Yeah. All right. Well, um, for those of you who are listening who are not football fans, basically we had a big old football thing over here in America as we do typically around February of this year. And uh, uh, Falcons versus Patriots, Patriots won, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm not going to get that because if anyone's listening from Boston and they're like, I, I dare you to say something bad about Brady. I dare you. I dare you. I dare you. I'm, I'm not going to say anything one way or the other. I didn't have a dog. Any of that fight, I'm a Cowboys fan at this point. So anyway. Uh, long story short, there were some commercials. The commercials were pretty toned down from what you expect from Super Bowl commercials. I think maybe they've kind of like said, okay, we're just going to roll that back because maybe it's not quite getting us. Maybe it's not getting us the ROI that uh, we typically expected. Maybe it's not um, w- with online marketing and advertising and everything. Maybe it's just not quite as, as you know financially viable to like dump you know, a couple of million dollars into basically a 30 second ad for a football game on a Sunday night in, in like, you know, in like late winter. So, um, but there were some really good commercials. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I, as a non-football fan, the thing is, is that there, there's kind of this, I don't know, uh, I want to say tongue in cheek joke that the Super Bowl is there to watch the commercials. So, yeah, it's disappointing to hear that they're more toned down because, you know, it's fun to go on YouTube later and, and watch the, the lineup back to back. I do know uh, that and not to get political, but the companies, some of the companies involved definitely use the opportunity to kind of, mm, I want to say, not necessarily just protest Trump. They took the advantage of people's like current uh, political polarity to basically earn a buck, you know, put their name out there. I mean, hey, that's what commercials are. The commercials are for advertising for companies. So it's like, you know, uh, oh, that's so sweet. They're so like, you know, on my side, whatever. And it's like, well, yeah, but they they really just want you to spend money on them. So they're, they're just taking a, a calculated gamble that it's going to work out in their favor. Yeah, there's a, uh, a distinct uh, hair care brand um, that did a wonderful take. Oh, that one was on, funny, though. That one was outright yeah, that funny. Yeah, that, was, that, that one made me actually chuckle out. Like that out was loud, hilarious, but, yeah. But I can't even remember the name of the company because they're, they're like, okay, so anyone who's listening who knows anything about type, you know, typography is probably, like, on the same board as us. Like, they showed the logo of the company. I'm like, what the, it's 10, like, Okay, look, I, I kind of like, okay, your advertising is working. I kind of want to like check out your product at least, but I can't even pronounce your name because I have no idea what, how many characters is that? What? <laughs> it like, I don't even know. Like, I have to, I'm going to have to go online and look up this company just because. Okay, it's, it's, it's literally called a 10 hair care. Oh God. A10, oh, A10 hair care. That's it. Oh God, that's I, I, I'm sorry. I read that in, in a sentence and I was confused. It's actually A space 10 
10 is in numeral like one zero numeral 10 10 and then in the hair care so yeah it's all right yeah and it's it's they're basically trolling trump that's what it is up and down so um anyway i you know i roll my eyes whatever it's like i like i, I it's the funny it's the funny gimmick of um you are here to entertain me don't don't be political with me and you know of course i'm political and you know that's it is what it is but I also find that when it comes to commercials, it's just outright pandering. Come on, guys. You know, whatever. whatever. Uh, uh, and um, I guess it's just the year for it. And everybody's just jumping on the bandwagon. So whatever. But let's talk about the ones that we actually care about. All the, right. The good ones. Let's go for it. So first of all, we had Ghost in the Shell had an update. They had the second uh, long uh, trailer. Uh, what were your thoughts on it? So I was actually having a conversation with a friend of mine at work who's all big into cyberpunk. And mm-hmm. we he, he's not a big football fan, but he's like, I watch it because I heard that a new trailer for that movie is going to be there. Um, so watching, I was like, wow. Aside from the discussion of like, okay, you have a movie that is, you know, an adaptation of a pretty major property in Japan, Asian property, where the vast majority of actors in it are non-Asian particularly the main protagonist. Um, aside from that, mm-hmm. you know, if, if anyone's read the original uh, Ghost in the Shell manga, or like aside from watching the, the original the original anime movie, the, the original manga is like in, almost impossible for you to to adapt into film because it's it's too violent and just like out just out of, out there in outer space in terms of like its concepts. It's really crazy. Like the only thing I can compare it to literally is um, probably the uh, Alter Carbon um, series of novels. Actually, in fact, those two actually have a lot of similar DNA. But the anime movie is a little bit more toned down. And in terms of like taking an animated film, an anime film, and making it a live action version of it, aside from the the racial issues or whatever, which it's interesting because if you if you talk to people in Japan, it's a very different take than you talk to people outside of Japan. By the way, yeah, I, um, I'll, I'll briefly touch on that when when you finish. Uh, yeah, about my my opinion on the 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 whitewashing issue. But go ahead, sorry. Precisely, it is the closest thing I've seen in just in trailer form to like we're going to take this animated work that's like like upheld and, and kind of like you know people like this is a very important piece of work. And then make a live action version of it and at least aesthetically maintain everything that was important about that, like all the way through. Like whoever did the production design and special effects and costume design for this, I think honestly needs to be applauded just by watching the the three trailers I've seen for it for so far. Because like those people are nailing it. They clearly have watched the source material and they clearly enjoy love and cherish the source material because they're really trying as hard as possible to carry it over just by watching this. I'm like, okay, you have me hooked. I'm going to go see this movie. I expect it to be maybe kind of mediocre off kill, maybe kind of like a misfire. That's just my, my initial read. Cause I'm just very guarded about this, but I'm at least going to go see the movie done. Yeah, I mean, Good I think it's going to be, work. it's going to be, yeah, commercial work. I, I actually, my only criticism of that trailer and what, how it reads into how they're going to do the movie is um, the brief uh, reveal at the end of the Puppet Master. I believe I'm, that's right, right? He, you know, was cool, but him like pulling off her face to show the mechanics underneath, I thought was honestly a little bit, 
too on the nail. Or no, sorry, what is it? Mm? Too much to the nail. Nose. Mm? Too on the nose. Too on the nose. <laughs> too on the nose. Arg. Let me mix my metaphors. Okay, too on the nose. Uh, in other words, an effect for the sake of doing the effect rather than pushing the story forward. There's already other shots that make her very obviously an android and just randomly dismantling her. I feel that in terms of storytelling was just kind of a, a cheap, it's a cheap shot. In other words, like as, a, as an effects person, don't do an effect for the sake of doing the effect. Do the effect because it, it supports the story. And it's like, we already know she's a robot. We've seen her get built. We've seen her get repaired. And it's like, and he basically goes up and, and what it is, is he, he assaults her basically. It, to, what to mm -hmm. get her to be on his side i mean if you look at it in terms of, of sim, uh, symbolism he is literally invading her space as it were you know and i i just find that out of character so i didn't like that shot i just thought it was dumb i didn't i didn't like have as as a like sort of a negative effect as as it on me as as you did but uh, i'm sorry i mean I'm, I'm saying it strongly but i mean my, i was just kind of like meh I wasn't like, oh, this is so offensive. I'm just like, nah. I just poor, poor choice, in my opinion. Well, I, I wasn't as negatively affected as you were, but at the same time, that shot in the trailer really did like, I um, mean, I mean, like I was in the middle of chopping onions while watching this thing. Okay, I was like, okay, chop, 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 chop. Okay, haven't chopped up a finger. Chop, chop, chop. Keep going. Chop, <laughs> yeah, okay, so I'm chopping my finger. Keep going. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. I haven't felt any pain. I'm pretty good at this right now. And then, like, just I'm like, and that that image like really stuck with me. Like, okay, wow, that's a really, that's a very specific scene to place at the end of the trailer. Because obviously, at the end of the trailer, if you're making a trailer, you want to like give a, a good zinger at the end before you hit the hit him with the title screen. I'm like, bah, it goes in the shell. So I'm like, wow, that's a really weird specific one to do it. And that's a good point, actually. And but like, I think that's what I, I mean, not in terms of the trailer. But I, I, like I said, I agree with you. You're going to want to set the tone for the movie with what mm -hmm. you reveal. And yep. and like I said, it does at least does say that they're going in a uh, they're not they're not doing a shot by shot remake of the anime. They're going to. Uh, tell the story in their own way which is a good thing because just a retread would be would be pointless uh and it also may be again the perennial problem of trying to appeal to a broader a broader audience than just the built-in audience so sometimes decisions like that are made uh to try to uh t tell the story to people who who so it's not too inside baseball yeah that's a good point um I, my personal take on that last shot um was i think that was really a response to a lot of the um sort of the blowback from like you okay you have a character who has a japanese name clearly is it's a japanese work it's a japanese anime directed or directed by a japanese person adapted from a japanese manga and you have a white girl playing that character um, they said, like, okay, here the shot shows that, well, maybe she's not all that she seems. And actually, well, in, uh, overlaying that with the voiceover uh, where he says they stole your life from you, I think you're right. Yeah. It does do a good job of uh, mm, serving the story while also perhaps attempting to address that. Uh, I don't know. Again, yeah. it, it's a good question is... Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, a big movie like this, and a, and of course, the current climate of 
people getting this uh, this negative image of Hollywood just basically going for the first white white person they can find, uh, and is is slowly starting to react to that. So it's it's like I said, there's a lot to unpack there. It could be said to be pandering, but it also could be saying artists who actually say, "Hey, look, no, your opinion matters to us, and we're trying to show you that." Like, and I've actually said this from the beginning. I do not think Ghost in the Shell is a typical case of Hollywood being lazy, and uh, it's also there's there's even I've actually had somebody say, "Well, my my biggest problem is not that she's white; it's that it's Scarlett Johansson," as if you know we we feel indignant when somebody. Uh, has become successful that they they continue to be successful because I think people feel like they're handed plum rolls whether they have the chops or not. So you kind of get hoisted by your own petard in a way, and mm -hmm. it's kind of a weird. It's like, oh, she's not new and unknown enough, puh. And it's like, really, that's your complaint? Okay, but um, I mean, I can, like I said, because of the very specific source material, I don't have a problem with her being a white girl. Um, and I mean. It's funny because we do have a genuine, real-life uh, Japanese man in the movie, um, uh, Takeshi, although he's listed here as Takeshi Kitano. Okay, I didn't know that. Hmm. I guess Meet is his nickname? Yeah, that, that's, usually how, that's usually how he's credited in the West. Oh, all right. So, all right. Yeah. Well, that kind of screws up our little one-liner and spindle, but oh well. But, um, <laughs> yeah, right? Oh. Um, but Machiko now quotes that one at me. It's like, really? Oh, really? God. I know my wife's quoting a movie at me that's not even out yet. Not not really at the finish, but uh, that's anyway, awesome, though it is kind of cool though. She actually is now started because yeah. she she by the way my wife did uh, the the translation of the subtitles and so she now, uh, <laughs> of course, knows the movie by heart. And so she she's just like she she starts to you know watch something on TV and and relate it to the lines from the movie. So it's it is very fun. Uh, but looking at the rest of the cast again, you've got a guy here. Uh, I'm not going to pronounce this right because I've never been able to figure out how to pronounce the letters NG together. Ing? Ching Han? How do you pronounce NG? Ing? Ing? Is it Ing? Okay. Ing Ching Han is a guy. There's a, you know, if, if, if you have to, here's the other problem. Don't do the token, right? So like, you know, that the South Park character, of course, being the joke, you know, his name is Token. He's a black kid. Don't do the token hire either. So it looks like we have a relatively diverse cast. Uh... Hey, some of them aren't even American, you know. Um, we got Lazarus Rafuer. Uh, again, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, sorry, Ratuer. Uh, Ratueri. He's a, a, a man of a Fijian descent who was, grew up in Australia. Wow, look at that diversity, right? So, um, again, I'm not apologizing for the movie or Hollywood in any way. But I, and like I said, I feel like in this case, they don't have anything to apologize for. And I'm looking forward to the movie and uh, hoping for the best. Yeah, like, um, yeah, the last two trailers of software, I'm like, okay, maybe this is actually going to be okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm hopeful. Yeah. So, um, yeah. okay, Stranger Things season two. Uh, first of all, uh, full disclosure, I still have to go watch Stranger Things. The only thing, the most I've oh seen boy. of it so far, I know, the most I've seen of it so far are the trailers and Winona Ryder at the uh, SAG Awards acceptance speech because she made funny yeah. faces. Okay. So, I really um, got to wonder what she was on because, man. Um, well, all right. Uh, so, yeah, you've seen Westworld. I haven't. I've seen Stranger Things. You okay. haven't. So, okay, there we go. Fair enough. Trade off. Done. Yep. Uh, all I will say about Stranger Things, um, for you personally, if you haven't seen it, is basically imagine if back in the 80s, mm, 
mid late 80s when there was all those Stephen King like sort of like uh, miniseries adaptations going on from his novels. Yeah, there was. Um, what was the? I I get the impression that it reminds me of the series um, Fantastic Stories. Oh, um, yeah, the uh, Amazing Stories. Amazing Stories. Thank of. you. Yeah, actually, no, not at all. I, I know. I know it's a little bit more like. I mean, from what I've seen, it's a little looks a little bit more like Goonies, uh, as in a, a ragtag band of kids that are up against strange things or stranger things. Yeah. As, a, as it goes um from watching it's basically it actually really does play out like a stephen king novel because mm-hmm. there's a lot of horror elements involved right but it's it takes place in 83 the first season um there's a lot of like 80s elements into it basically it's it's imagine if, if stephen king wrote a novel i can imagine that and then had steven spielberg yeah steven spielberg um like go and like either produce or direct that and that's what we kind of got in season one. It really, there's a lot of, there's several shots where it's like, that is totally a Spielberg shot. You're like, you were totally lining the camera up the way that Spielberg were lining up in this shot with this kid, yada, yada, yada. And the whole cast is just like on fire the whole time. Like every character is interesting. Every, you know, nuance of that character is like, even the ones who get killed off in like the first like episode or like, okay, well, it sucks they died because like I was actually kind of like interested in like hearing more about their shit, but you know, they're well, well they got eaten by the thing. Um, yeah, I gotta say the, the trailer intrigued me because, uh, like the one shot of, of, of a brief Cthulhu like shadow on the horizon. I was like, Oh, hello. Yeah. Yeah. So now I'm, I'm, I, I have to watch it just to find out what that is. Cause I, I, I kind of, I'm kind of a, not exactly a Cthulhu buff, but I did go through the whole, um, whole phase of reading through all of the um what's his what hp lovecraft yeah, I, re- I basically went through all of his books because they're uh free online so you can just you know find a website that that hosts them and, and go through and read them all and uh, it's quite it's quite uh quite the right i definitely recommend it if, if you haven't tried it yet. yeah there's a lot of lovecrafting like elements referenced in the first season um like kind of subtly but it, it very much feels like if you watch the first season, like you're you feel like this feels like a horror miniseries that got executed and produced and done in the eighties and just somehow never got shown. You know, somehow like maybe some some network executive at NBC or CBS said like, Yeah, I don't like that guy, screw him. Uh we're not even show it. I know we paid fifteen million for it, blah. I think I meant. I think I. Yeah, I hear you. I think I mentioned in a previous episode that uh, the Stranger Thing guys themselves were on interviewed on uh, on Harmontown, which is Dan Harmon's uh, podcast, and they were they were like going, "Yeah, we were shocked as much as anybody else that that this project out of all the projects that we've pitched got greenlit." Uh, and you know, it's it's good for us. Hey, I mean, I think it's very cool, um, and it gives me hope uh, that with the the shakeup in the uh the, the industry as far as how things get made and distributed nowadays that we're going to start seeing more creative stuff uh like this so it's cool and like i can see that the first season's only eight episodes so i have like no excuse to just go catch up on it well this 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 series really put a lot of people on notice because like oh by the way netflix is kind of like the going to be the next hbo if it isn't already and by the way it doesn't take a disney studio to go and like make something of quality that everyone wants to watch because this thing got so much traction it was like and it was pretty organic from my point uh my point of view it's kind of like it got thrown out there it was heavily advertised but it was kind of like 
Stranger Things are coming, da da da, and they would play like a little bit of the soundtrack and be like, oh, that sounds very 80s, and oh, Winona Ryder's in it? Oh, crap, I'm going to check that out, and then like people got just sucked into it, which, by the way, I want to shout out to um, um, Survival. They're the actually the, the band that did the the soundtrack to the you know to Stranger Things, and they uh, um, they're here in Austin. They're from here in Austin, and they uh, I think they're up for a Grammy or something. Ooh, very cool! Uh, or Golden Globe on uh, on on just the the strength of the soundtrack alone, which really is like an homage to all like really to John Carpenter and all of his movies and a lot of the horror movies from the eighties. Uh, even like the ones that were not nice. So hometown, pre- hometown boys make good, huh? Precisely. I mean, they really killed it. Um, so one of the things that interested me, uh, and, and I don't, I, uh, I'd be curious if the band falls into that same category, the stranger thing, sorry, the stranger things, uh, creators, of course, are too young to remember the eighties. And they were just kind of fascinated with it, kind of you know, fans of it. And I'm, uh, I'm wondering, uh, how old is, are the guys in the survival band? Um, they're a bit younger than me, I think. Um, they're actually tied to, um, uh, there's actually a really legendary synth, uh, like synth shop in Austin, uh, called, uh, switched on, which I think one of the guys who runs or manages or owns it is like a friend with one of the guys, in the bands, or maybe one of the guys, in the bands worked, uh, there, it's all apocryphal, but uh, I go down the, there regularly just to like check out like what they got because it's basically you walk in there and it's like, oh wow, shit, that's an ARP twenty six hundred, like an original nineteen seventies ARP twenty six hundred. The whole suitcase thing, I'm um, just like, you have it set up, I can play it. Yeah, that's you're cool. cool. <laughs> okay. oh, oh, here's some headphones. Oh, okay, thanks, man. And just like go at it, and just like they have Moogs weird japanese synths sometimes like it, 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 they 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 basically recondition to resell old analog synthesizers um and you go down there it's like wow you got some like like i i've seen people play this i've seen rick Wakefield play this like this thing back in the like you know the 70s or 80s but i've never actually seen one physically the one thing that blew me away was i went down the one time and they had an actual yamaha cs80 which just floored me because that was one of the like, okay, that was one of the original synthesizers that like kind of started the movement. Peter Gabriel played that thing. Vangelis played that thing. Vangelis actually used it to play part of, I think if I remember correctly, uh, the theme to chariots of fire. Um, and it's this big church organ, a church, church organ looking thing. It's like 200 pounds packed into its flight case. It's it's all it's it's all hand wired, but due to its design, like Yamaha designed it, like thinking like, well, we don't know how to design synthesizers right now, but we know church organs, we know like electric pianos, we can do all that. Um, so they built a synthesizer, and that it it is so incredibly expressive that to this day, like it's kind of hard to replicate that sound because it's kind of like wow, it's like almost super orchestral. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's like the some the the result is greater than the sum of its parts kind of situation where Yeah, precisely. When you build something or uh, organic like that, I say analog, organic might be the wrong term, but yeah, it kind of uh has a certain uh quality to it that you just can't get even no matter how hard you program. 
you can't just replicate magically through software. Yeah. Um, but we're kind of getting off uh, off track here. Uh, try to pull it back in. We get because well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about music more in depth. Uh, but the re the reason why I I question or I, I raised the question about the survival group was I was just curious. It's such a a, a novel feeling for me still. Uh, you know, I guess one of the joys of getting older is when your childhood becomes a fad for you know the uh, say like for example the millennials, and it's like it's like must be how our parents felt about you know the sixties and seventies when you know when we were kids and we thought that was retro and cool, and they're like going, uh, okay, whatever, dude, you know we were there. And then to, again, having these people who are describing my childhood but never actually saw it themselves is a, is like I said a new and interesting sensation. But uh, again, that's that's neither here nor there. But again, I, I'm going to watch it, and uh, I'm I'm definitely now m much more intrigued. And of course, it's one of those funny things where it's like, well, everybody's been telling me to watch it, and I I haven't been probably out of a, sub a subconscious. Uh, stubbornness like well you say it's good so i'm you know i'll get around to it well um okay one one thing i want to point out um i'm remiss it's the band's official name is not survival it's survive <gasps> well that's okay we've corrected all, it in, all, in podcast all, all capital at all capital letters survive so just awesome all right yeah so uh definitely uh we'll see if we can find some uh music to link to and people who can check it out of course you can always just watch stranger things um yep. so moving on we also have uh let's see uh one more uh big commercial that was on the super bowl that i was way more impressed with than i thought i was going to be and that was the nintendo switch yeah the way that it's not the i mean i knew all about the hardware but it's the way they pitched it that really got me intrigued and i think that it, if this, if it's everything it promises to be, I think that Nintendo Nintendo may have knocked it out of the park on this one. Um, I can give you a little inside baseball on that. Uh, so we do a lot of social media monitoring and uh, like like location uh, page view tracking at my work in terms of like commerce stuff. Okay, so if you go to any of the algorithms that we use to like churn up like, okay, what's, what's the highest track thing, you know, analytically. Um, if it's, if you're pointing it to anything that's like, um, video game related or even electronically like, like Best Buy, uh, GameStop, whatever here in, in the States, um, overwhelmingly it's, it's basically the switch. Hmm. There you go. Um, my, my, uh, I think the killer, what it is, is, you know, every, every success story has to do with its killer app as, uh, computer nerds like to call it, uh, for computers, literally for computers, the original killer app was the spreadsheet as boring as that might sound. And the thing about this is it looks like they're really pushing the social aspect and the idea that first of all, it also looks like, um, network play is they they make it look so easy as if it's just kind of you know you don't have to think about it it's totally transparent which is cool the the social aspect where it looks like there's a lot of drinking parties involved uh or, or i should say uh uh what do i want to say drinking games involved where you know hey if you lose you got to drink something because i mean they, they have all these young attractive young people at uh like outside bars and stuff like that 
uh, playing against each other. Uh, but I think that the the thing that really works here is the denertifying of it. Uh, and I say that uh, as a nerd, but tongue in cheek, because the biggest thing that has held video games back historically has been the image associated with the people who play those games. And Nintendo, I think this is like the ultimate evolution of where they thought they were going with the original Nintendo Wii. I would say this is the evolution of where they were hoping to go with with the Wii U, which, yeah. Um, I I, I that kind of fell through the cracks for me. I mean, I've heard people talk about it, but I wasn't really invested in shopping around for game consoles. So when that, that came out, I was kind of like, you know, I, I knew it of its existence, and that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's actually interesting. I found a chart. I'll have to go dig it up online um, of all the different Nintendo consoles worldwide released since like 1983 up to current and um these sort of like the number of software titles released for those across like the three major markets japan united states europe and how it fluctuates in terms of like the number of titles available because ultimately it's kind of like well the more titles you have out there the more sales you're going to get in terms of software the more people want to go buy your 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 system but, um, yeah, the Wii did the Wii U did not fare well in any any metric that you can look at in any of those regards, any of those heuristics. That I just like it. It just it just died. It was dead on arrival, in my opinion. Um, it's kind of unfortunate because it was actually a pretty good hardware package. I played one. It was like, okay, this is sturdy. This is like, you know, okay, the the novelty is like, okay, and shut this thing off and go up up to my bedroom and sit down and still play Zelda and whatever and, and not be a bother to anyone who wants to watch like whatever, like football or soccer or whatever on TV. So but, wait, the Wii U itself had a lot of the Switch capabilities already? I had no idea about that. Uh, parts of it. Parts of it. Not all the parts of it. It was kind of like... um. So you had a, like a standard Wii console, like and honestly, Wii U is like the worst name that Nintendo can, could come up with because most people like <laughs> Wii, Wii by itself Wii. was controversial. If people don't remember, you know, we've we've normalized it now, but people were like going seriously, Wii, yeah, anyway, precisely. But at the same time, it's like Wii U. It's like Wii with an extra letter at the end. So it's like, oh, it's like just a software upgrade, right? Like actually, no, it's a completely different system. Well, you know, to the untrained eye, it looks just like the old system. So what? Right. You That's know, a problem. Just, no differentiation. It, if you can't differentiate, I mean, marketers always know you got to go for the the bullet points on the the feature list as much as that sucks. Uh, but um, and uh, by the way, if you're a Kung Pao Enter the Fist fan, the, the name Wii U itself is also very entertaining. Uh, <laughs> off, off quoted line from that movie. Wii U, Wii U. Good call. I know. It's funny. Anyway, uh, go ahead. Sorry. But um, anyway, so they kind of whiffed on the, their last console. This one looks substantially more interesting. Um, I can tell you just on web interest in general, like people are definitely more interested in this thing than they were the Wii U, most likely. Um, should be... I really want to see what happens. I think they actually may have a hit on the hands, but the thing that will really define it, and this is always the thing with new consoles. And if we, when we do the, 
the video game episode. I'm I'm gonna get into this, but basically boils down to this. Regardless of what your console consists of hardware wise, you need to do two things. One, you need to make an SDK that is easy to use, and then two, you need to have a shit ton of, of software. A lot you mean like, of software. Like are you talking about uh like console titles? Like hmm, what do they call what do they call the titles that are locked into that console? I forget. Uh, the, those are technically technically called like well like AAA. Now, I know they call them AAA, but there's actually there's a I, I'm sorry I thought there was another technical term for when you console exclusive. Con, thank you. <laughs> I could just use the English. Sorry guys. Okay, so yeah, the, like are you saying console exclusive titles or just having a wide offering of titles? Period. Wide offering. Um, just just um, straight out. Doesn't matter if they're locked in or not. Just make sure they're there. It, it helps to have console exclusives, but in this day and age, it's kind of harder to do that. Well, and if you're Nintendo, though, I mean, you're spoiled for choice when it comes to console exclusive. You you basically set the, you, you, you invented the genre. Yeah, basically Nintendo says we had, the reason Nintendo's kind of like gone on and on and continued on on is that it's like we have the best first party IP ever. You know, we have Mario, we have Yoshi, we have everything. We have all that, you know. But at the same time, we can do all all those games really well. But outside of that, then what do we have? And that was the problem with Wii U. Outside of that, we we have nothing, really. Right. We have nothing. Actually, we you had um, EA come and say, like, okay, these sports titles we're going to produce... We're gonna do it for these two other consoles over here, but not you, because honestly, your hardware doesn't doesn't work for us. It's hard for us to convert over to what you basically to your hardware stack. Yeah, it was one of the big uh, problems with the original PlayStation Three was the uh, chips were so hard to program to the PowerPC chips that they used. Yeah. Which ironically is one of the things that haunted Apple for years because they also use PowerPC chips. Well, no. Um, yeah, actually, PS3 did not use PowerPC. They used some weird, bizarre prototype thing that Toshiba developed for them. PS3? I thought they were... No, I thought they were using the... Uh, what was what was supposed to have become the, the successor to the G4. No, ironically enough, that was actually the Xbox 360. Okay, wow. I, well, I, I was yeah. wrong. Ironically enough, that was like the Xbox 360 was a PowerPC RISC processor enabled system. What? Well, anyway, I, I do know, though, that as you said, I mean, when things are hard to program to, it was, and, and this is a little bit uh, uh, off topic again, but that one of the, I think historically people know that one of the biggest challenges Apple had was software offerings. And it came down to people saying, I don't want to program for your hardware. I have to basically write, rewrite the whole thing. It's not worth it. And so switching to uh, the Intel chip was a big bonus for them because third-party developers didn't have to rewrite the code as much. So when your your processor literally does the math in a different way, it kind of puts people off. But um, so anyway, I think that uh, I'm, I'm also wondering how much of the potential success that I see in the, in the uh, Switch's future can also be ascribed to people wanting something more social and different than the same old, same old. The thing is that the consoles of, you know, PlayStation uh, and uh, Xbox, of course, are 
have have historically i felt been very much of a, a kind of like a an isolated what do i say a, a single player experience even though you can network play you still did it from the comfort of your own home and those people are somewhere else and you can say you know if you want to you can say horrible things to them over a headset but you never actually see them uh whereas the the switch is saying hey you can take me out to the park and, and play high noon you know uh with your friend and and literally you know uh role play being cowboys while you do it which looks pretty pretty awesome just for, for the entertainment factor and i'm like i said they're Nintendo's basically saying, let's make this social. And I think that that's a huge uh, demand. Like, you kind of see it. Well, they're they're playing to the people that grew up playing, the, I guess, the Nintendo DS and you know, all the handhelds, those that generation saying, you know, now you can make a party out of it instead of just, you know, head to head. You can also do it with your friends in beer groups, too. And, and you don't have to be restricted to, you know, uh, I don't know, like I said, the demographic of of being an eight to twelve year old kid who, you know, just wanted to hang out with his friends and play on on his uh, on his handheld, versus going like I said, going to a party and, and being able to to make an, a social event out of it. Well, um, you have a much more optimistic uh, read on video gamers than I do. <laughs> optimistic. I was sold by the commercial. Well, I mean, like I said, there. I don't think they're appealing to video gamers. Even though they have their stable of of traditional first person titles, this this commercial was well, a Super Bowl commercial. They're saying these these this is you know this is your jam, people. You, you people who like football, you'll also enjoy the Nintendo Switch. So they're they're gambling, but I think they're gambling in a really interesting way that isn't they don't like the typical like Xbox commercial or PlayStation commercial. You know they're they're going to use words in there like power and you know. Uh, you know blood pumping excitement blah 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 and the nintendo switch commercial was largely with no script just people smiling laughing having fun and it it, it literally you know the the international language of we're ha we're having fun together without having to explain it not literally selling you on people enjoying themselves uh, my final thoughts on this are that uh one i think the hardware is going to be like wonderful it looks really well designed. It looks like something you really want to put your hands on. And that's great. Um, I think the prospect of it being multiple things at once, like it's a, a home console. No, it's a handheld console. Well, it's a tablet. Well, it's actually, it can be all of these things. You know, you have to reconfigure it manually, but it can be any one of these things you want. Use it as you will, which is kind of like, that's cool because it really opens up to like the the whole Williamson concept. Like, well, the street usually takes things that has kind of like an open end form of technology and like repurposes it for its own purpose. That's cool. I'm totally into that. Um, I think the platform will live and die on the fact that one, it's going to get fantastic first party support from Nintendo, as every Nintendo you know platform does. What's really going to make it or break it is whether or not you have companies like Ubisoft, EA, at all, like buy into this thing. You need the you know, adoption. It, if you can't get the titles that your traditional gamer is looking for, yeah, you're not going to get the tastemakers to jump on board. Or, or, or not even the traditional gamer. 
you know, you can actually excise them from this, this, this like mental, like, you know, sort of like, uh, exercise. You just need a lot of really good titles. Where do they come from? Like Nintendo or elsewhere, or they appeal to like the Call of Duty gamer or like someone who's more like, well, I like old Mega Man games. Like, it doesn't matter. You need a lot of really good, compelling titles to appeal to some level of people and they will go buy your console. I, I see your point. And I, I, I yeah, I'm going to take it back. And um, by the way, when I make a reference to tastemakers, it's actually more of a, uh, a reference to how typically how people recommend computers, uh, which actually, as, as you point out, is not how you recommend a game console. It's basically people need to find the games they want to play. So, and again, I'm, I, I, at first I was lukewarm on it and, like I said, this commercial for me, it sounds like at least Nintendo knows what direction they want to go in. And that is a big deal. As you said, it, it remains to be seen if other companies will jump on board, uh, which will be very um, important. But, you know, half of half of the effort is is the company knowing where they want to go so that other companies can say, OK, well, you have a plan and that's important. So, um, and then it just remains to be seen if the rest of the world says, yeah, this is f fulfilling something that we've been looking for and had, had, uh, hadn't had. And so, yay, let's, let's all we, or not, sorry, not we, switch. Hmm. I wonder if that's a little bit of a, Ooh. of a nefarious. Ooh, headshot. Anyway, a little bit of subliminal programming there. <laughs> so you're going to say what now? Uh, I was going to say that, uh, based on the Super Bowl ad, I was like, okay, all right, you... At some point, I may not buy it um, day one, but you have my money at some point. Fair enough. I mean, if they come out with a, a uh, follow-up to... Uh, what was that Metroid game that was on the Nintendo GameCube that you introduced me to? Uh, well, they had multiple ones. So the one the I one... played was... The, basically, it was the first... I want to say first person. It was a Nintendo GameCube. You loaned it to me. You don't remember which one that was? Oh, God. Okay, so interesting background. That, that was Metroid Prime. Prime, yes, that's the one. That was done by Red Five. the The software team that developed that was actually here in Austin, Texas. What? Yeah, hmm. I know their software, like their development house, because the company I used to work for, like, took over the lease. Huh. All right. Wow. Like, I've I actually spoke to people who worked on that game, and the one of the the best things that they ever said, or were ever heard, from anyone who worked on that game was okay. So the weird thing was about Metro Prime was that it was the first metric game that was produced by non-Japanese people. Um, it's produced by American, largely American software developers in America, in Austin, Texas. The overseer of the whole project was, you know, Miyamoto Shigeru. Like the guy who created like, you know, Link, Zelda, you know, Zelda, Mario, Donkey Kong, all that. He was like kind of like the executive producer of the whole thing. And he was a whole project when they delivered the game, sort of like the gold master. He played through it and he came back and he said, yeah, Gunpei would love this game. And that was, they were like, that is the best praise we could ever get. Yeah, exactly. So um, they did um, three games in that series. They did a Metro Prime, Metroid, uh, I guess Prime 2, I forget it had a special name to it. And then Metro Prime 3, like I think Echoes or Corruption. Sounds about right. Anyway, 
Yeah, so they did three series, three games in that series, and they were all kind of like built on, you know, the same game engine. They kind of went on their whole thing with that, and and, and they were all great, actually. In fact, if you want to go buy those games for the, the original Wii, they came out for. Um, good luck. You got to go, you know, pony up a whole bunch of money because they're kind of like sought after. Seriously. Yeah. Wow. See, the thing is that if if I had a, if I could point to any, any game that would uh, get me to buy uh, a Nintendo console, it would be that Met- Metroid series uh, because you know the original Metroid as the side-scrolling you know uh, shooter was you know kind of like meh, but uh, but that game was so just rich and deep and beautifully well done. Uh, it was just so much fun. Um, so, like I said, if there's anything that was going to convince me. To, to you know buy a a Nintendo like uh, w- without even like thinking about it that would be the one yeah it should be interesting maybe they're gonna they maybe they'll come up with something really spectacular but like outside of like the Nintendo first party they really need to have like a really good third party like offering otherwise they won't get any traction yeah well here's here's hoping. I mean, I'm, they're not dead yet. <laughs> and the other thing, um, who, who knows? They may be going, this may be a sign. There may be subtle signs that they're going in a new direction. Like, it, obviously, they're they're delving into uh, offering things on mobile platforms like the iPhone. So, they obviously are trying to be flexible and uh, and adapt. And that's a good sign. The guts of the... Of the uh, Switch, I believe, are actually basically an NVIDIA Shield, which for people who don't know, uh, there's been a uh, Steam, NVIDIA, and uh, I'm trying to think of anybody else. These uh, companies who you wouldn't really expect it have been trying to kind of not exactly break into the game market. What they're trying to do is bring PC gaming into the living room. So you can... I guess, be in a more relaxed setting while you uh, practice your headshots. I don't know. Uh, In other words, basically trying to compete more with the console. And so they develop these these weird hybrid computer animals that allow you to take your PC game and uh, play it on your TV. And so the Switch itself seems to be based on the the, the NVIDIA Shield hardware. But uh, in that might bode well for uh game support because again as you said if it's, a, if it's a something that's easy to program to and it's obviously in nvidia's best interest as well because i'm sure they'll figure out how to they're trying to use this as a way to leverage that particular uh, platform for their own benefit so you know uh, again it's uh it's interesting to see this kind of innovation coming from a, a market that is relatively uh uh has a lot of inertia, I guess. Yeah. Um, that's why I'm feeling hopeful for the switch. Yeah. Okay. We're getting way into gaming and that is a whole separate episode, but, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't move on, uh, to talk about two other things that are coming, uh, in more of the, the, uh, television realm. And one is a Dune reboot. Well, the Dune reboot might not, I, I don't think it's actually going to be television. I think it's actually going to be theatrical. Ooh, now that, now you have my attention. Shut up, take my money. 
Well, okay, so it came out over the, like, I think the past three or four days that uh, Dilsvenov is uh, officially attached to the Dune reboot, quote, unquote. Like, Who is this? Dilsvenov is the uh, director who directed uh, Arrival. Oh, yeah, you mentioned that, I believe, last time, or maybe a couple episodes ago. Okay, so Arrival, which... Which, by the way, if you, if, you, if you haven't seen, that's an incredible science fiction novel. We did. I remember we talked about, uh, we actually, Jesus, oh, we talked about the clear back in, that was a, a, several several episodes ago. Actually, maybe it, I think it may have been episode, episode three. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I, I still am waiting to see it. Uh, I, it has come out here. It's just a matter of uh, time and money right now. But um, anyway, uh, so, and I, of course, you know, Arrival was a smash hit and people loved it. Uh, it's exciting. Uh, again, I, I was a fan of the original Dune. I didn't have a problem with it. Uh, it will be interesting to see it, a, a modern take on it. And again, this, this is one of those times where I feel that it's justified because we can do so much more with the effects to tell the story as, as it was meant to be told. Well, I think it's not so much that because um, the original Dune, the 84 Dune, if you're referring to that. Yes. Um, had a pretty good team. I mean, like the 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 special effects don't hold up very well. If you watch the Blu-ray, it's kind of like okay, I can see the matte lines. It's kind of like that's that's kind of gross. But great cast. Um, the costume design was exceptional beyond belief. I mean, like seriously, like if you look at like the video games that were authored based on dude after the fact are like okay you're clearly taking from the costume designs from the 84 lynch film mm-hmm. you know no one's going to debate that and um but you know and then the sandworms were designed by the same guy who designed et they look great okay from 84 they still look pretty good from like this yeah they do i gotta say that's and uh, yeah i mean those those have become very iconic as well. I mean, you see it all over the place now. I mean, it's you have, have since then seen it all over the place. Yeah, but the, what they whiffed on was like the the whole sort of like emotional level of like what's going on this the story, and so I'm kind of like hopeful that Dilsvan Ev. I mean, we're talking the same guy who who directed Arrival. He's going to be directing Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Well, he's basically the golden child now. Yeah, he's now going to be directing Dune. Um, what they're going to do with that, I'm not sure. It's going to be a movie, and maybe they're going to do the Lord of the Rings treatment where they go like, well, we're going to do a whole series that goes this range, and then a series that goes that range. Then, ooh. Do you think and they're going then, to try to cover more than uh, like like more of the whole series of novels? It sounds like it. It sounds wow. like they're going to like invest That's in just ambitious. doing more than just just the original novel. I think that that, that would do much better. And they've they've tried to do as many series before, of course. And I think that actually, if they can get the backing, doing that as a multi part, like you said, as a trilogy, for example, would be fantastic because it it is that kind of you know uh, space opera, as our friend David Lynch likes to say. I'm not doing your space opera, Lucas, uh, who uh, is that kind of space opera that really begs for that kind of bombastic theatrical treatment. Hello? Did I shock you off the, off the, off the, 
my my David Lynch again. No, no, I'm totally with you on that. I'm like, I'm, I'm like actually, the only thing I want to add to that is I think you really need to open a Twitter account called Alt David Lynch and just do that. Well, I can't do the voice through Twitter though, but you know. I know it, it's a shame because you really do it so well. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'll give Ralph Garman a run for his money. If anybody's ever listened to Hollywood Babylon, he also does uh, inspire David Lynch, uh, the man of, of uh, 31 voices. Anyway, um, I get the feeling that um, if they could do the kind of visual treatment that we got with uh, Jupiter ascending, but with a plot. Yeah. Then I think we're in for a treat. I'm with you. I'm curious, and, and speaking of, of making fun of David Lynch and, of course, you know, uh, Dune alumni, uh, what do you think about uh, the Twin Peaks continuation? I'm super excited, but the one thing I want to add before we go into the uh, Twin Peaks, sure. which is going to happen this year, um, the Dune remake. The thing about it that's going to be really intriguing to me is that the closer they get to the end of the series, like Dune Chapter House or whatever, the more Jodorowsky-esque the whole, like, narrative becomes. And considering that Jodorowsky, like, you know, was the first, like, guy who tried to tackle making, like, an, a film adaptation of Dune, and it was crazy. Like, he was, like, balls out, like, oh, my God, this is lunatic. But at the same time, you know, the collapse that gave us Alien, it gave us, like, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I'm kind of really interested to see how this, this time around and how it goes, how the ride goes. But anyway, by the way, is there any timeline on when that will happen? Not that I know of, mm. uh, supposedly like maybe next year they're okay. going to work on it. Cool. I mean, which means that we're probably looking at 2019 then like 19 or 20. Yeah. yeah. Oof. Probably. Actually, they might, they might shoot for 20 just for the, the number. 2020. Yeah. yeah. That sounds good. Yeah. It's, it's the kind of, and especially if you're, uh, I don't know. I think I think a lot of we're gonna see a lot of uh, movies are gonna be angling for that year as a release date just for the the free <laughs> advertising that brings you know being well, such an auspicious Dick number. Well, would approve, right? Yeah. How so? Well, the the original Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep was actually set in San Francisco in 2020. That's right. All right then. And he did it because of the whole optic, you know, sort of like correlation. The reason that the original Blade Runner was set in 2019 because um, Ridley Scott thought that was like, well, 2020 is too on the nose. Let's roll it back one year and call it good. Yeah, for uh, for those who ever wonder, by the way, uh, I mentally, we never decided. We always were actually had this uh, fun debate about what year should Spindle take place. And, and mentally, I was, I was thinking if I was going to pick a year, I was actually going to probably pick like 2052 as being far enough out to be plausible but again 2050 being too on the nose and uh it's sci science fiction being future proof is a perennial problem right <laughs> so by the way what, what was your mental year for spindle i was thinking like like 2020 20 202 something 202 something maybe 203 something well you are optimistic mm. <laughs> but uh, actually remember uh, kind of a, a weird uh kind of lateral reference to something like uh, Stranger Things is that we actually debated placing it in, just saying, you know what, it took place in 1982 and calling it a day. And people would be like, wait, what? That's like the past. It's like, yeah, now you can't argue about it being future proof. So I'm there. 
but I'm I'm really happy we didn't do that because I think at that point you're just trying too hard. So it took it takes place, you know, whenever. We're not gonna set a year and at some point it will inevitably be out of date and that's the way it goes. Yeah. But I mean, hey, look at uh, uh actually referring back to Ghosts in the Shell, they don't particularly say what year, do they? No, they don't. But like you look at it like, wow, that's like ninety cyberpunk to the max. Boom. Uh it has it, it meets the that that necessary criteria of a uh, T- timelessly classic and so i think uh it holds up well i i really i think that's a good observation and i want to like, give you uh, like sort of like a uh an additive to that and that uh we were watching the super bowl my amy and i were watching the super bowl and uh that you know that commercial came on and we both kind of sat there and watched it in silence. And she and she was like, "Okay." I'm like, "All right, ScarJo explosions, androids, and shit." I'm like, "Okay." Well, uh, my internal dialogue was kind of like, "Okay, um, I'm going to see this," but uh, my expectations is that it's going to be slightly mediocre, just because I expect anyone who tries to adapt. You know, a Japanese story for Western audiences is going to kind of like lose a lot of what makes that story really like compelling in the first place. But at the same time, Miami says, don't you have this already on Blu-ray? <laughs> she thought you already own it because you have the anime movie. No, she's watching it. She's like, you have this on Blu-ray, don't you? I'm like, the anime version is like, oh... I get it. This is like the Hollywood version of that. Okay, cool. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, one way that you, you, you have at least one ticket sold, um, whatever movie company is putting, producing this, who is producing this? Is it like, what oh, is that's it a like? Good question. Let me check, double check. And I, I, by the way, um, while I'm looking that up, I should mention, uh, uh, I should mention that, uh, we, we've this will probably be an ongoing theme in this podcast that the problem that we face where uh cross-cultural movies like cross-cultural in other words adapting from one culture to another in a movie there is a unique problem because of the there's certain understood what do i want to say not memes but there's certain things that are simply culturally understood and they have they come from a fundamentally different culture therefore uh, you can tell the story that and Japanese people are going to watch it and be like, oh, this totally speaks to me. And Americans might watch it and just scratch their heads and say, this is dumb. And it's not that it's dumb. It's just that you don't have the the vocabulary, the the cultural vocabulary to relate to it. And so I think it's the the perennial problem of trying to to take a very, you know, the, the incredibly rich offerings, like the diverse offerings of the Japanese storytelling you know, uh, industry is the wrong word, but you know, of course, anime industry, for example, and trying to bring them to the West. It's like, it looks like such tempting fruit, but again, making it work for the general audience, I think is always going to be a challenge. So here we go. It says here, the production companies are Paramount and DreamWorks. Okay. Those are, that's good. That's a good pedigree for, uh, companies that, uh, know what they're doing when it comes to, uh, good sci-fi i mean they've always done they've, they've always they've always seemed to have done a, a a good job with like you know going all the way back to indiana jones and uh star star trek yeah so i think it's in good hands did dreamworks partner with the warshawskis on anything i feel like i've, I've um 
seen their name in connection with them, but that guy could be totally imagining it and making stuff up. So it doesn't matter. The w- weird thing is they're going to release it in France first. Huh. Okay. As you do. Well, that's actually, honestly, that's not weird at all. How so? This is coming from a guy who just finished reading The Inkle. So, huh. the who what? The Inkle. The Inkle? Uh, yeah. The uh, Jordiowski's uh, sort of like, well, You've never heard the ankle. No, the, it sounds like the, you're saying the ankle. George, who? Yeah, the ankle um, by uh, Alejandro Jordowski and um, Alejandra. Yeah, and uh, Mobius. Huh. The ankle. I'm trying to even spell it. How do you spell it? I n c l. Oh, ankle. Okay. Ah, Alejandro uh, Jordowski, ankle. Yeah, I will. I will have to. Um, check up on that uh, later okay but uh, we should try to get back on track Um, so we were the next thing is the uh, continuation not the reboot strangely but the outright straight up chronological continuation of Twin Peaks which is like only again huh I'm so excited for this really you know it's funny I I this for people who don't know Twin Peaks was a phenomenon back in 1991 I was in Germany at the time. I remember my host sister was super into it. And I was just like, okay. And they played, <laughs> this being Europe, they played the theme music ad nauseum. I mean, just over and over again, wherever you went. And people were just really into it. And I finally didn't actually sit, sit down to watch it until last year uh, at the uh, suggestion of our mutual friend, Mark. And he's like, you won't regret it. And I have to say, Mark, by the way, is definitely has impeccable taste in uh, television and movie recommendations. And he was right. So why are you excited about it? Um, just like like the overall continuation, because I was a fan of the the original series. Um, and then on like a really weird like cliffhanger, you're like, okay, what, what happens with Cooper? What happens with Bob? What happens? Like, oh my God, the investigation. Um, Twin Peaks is really a like an exercise in like cult TV, like everything that people expect from a TV show produced by a cable company, HBO, Showtime, whatever, or some other cable company, um, is the derivative of what Twin Peaks did back in like 1990, 1991. So uh, it's kind of like the the OG coming coming out may like we have unfinished business um, describe like what happened at the end of the story because if you follow Twin Peaks you know that it ended on a cliffhanger where Agent Cooper bangs his head against like a mirror and like reflects the sort of like spiritual bad guy of the series and like you're like what happened to the Black Lodge oh my god whatever um, yeah, I don't think little, we're spoiling like, a, a 20 plus year old story besides the fact you can't watch the continuation without watching the original series so for people who are wondering you're welcome please do please do go watch the original series um it's worth it and i do agree you i mean it 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 did in reality it did get outright canceled right they wanted to continue it and i believe that they the plug was pulled but you could even say that you know despite the ignominy of being canceled they did manage that cliffhanger was a reasonably good ending to the story. Uh, if you wanted to end it as a thriller, 
the idea of this uh this uh spectral uh serial killer that jumps from body to body and that that's kind of the big reveal and then lo and behold our hero of uh or pro protagonist of the story this intrepid uh, fbi detective uh is the one who gets possessed in the end and but the weird the choice of saying you know what we're just going to pick uh pick up as if 20 plus years have already gone by. How about, I mean, 1991 till now. It's, I haven't got it, man. Um, 25 years? About 25 26. plus. Uh, yeah. Plus well, well, I'm, I'm rounding, guys. I'm, I'm being lazy. Yeah, plus or minus three years. There you go. Yes, it's a statistical thing. Um, anyway, but my point being is, is that uh, we're basically, what do you do? Say, has he been wandering around for 25 plus years as an insane serial killer? Has this has Bob jumped into another body? I mean, what the what is this going to be an entirely different story? Like, oh, yeah, that dude took off and that's it. And then that's when Peaks is a totally different story. So like where they're going to go with this is just like very intriguing. And, and it's a it's a very a creative, creatively speaking. It's a very bold move. Yeah, and there's all the ancillary characters you like, kind of like cared about when you watch the whole, the whole series, like season one. Season Are they going to still be there? Um, some of them will be. Um, I know. I mean, a lot of those, and all those people were high, were like high school students, and now they are going to literally be, I don't know, us, basically. <laughs> Well, I mean, even some of the actors and actresses are like, you know, no longer with us. Like the log lady is gone. Oh, yeah. She will not be there. Um, but at the same time, they left us with enough mystery to build another mystery. So it's going to be interesting to see what they do with all that. Well, it's also interesting because since the story is tied very specifically to the town of Twin Peaks, uh, and it's a very small town. Um, again, it's an interesting creative choice because it it almost, you know, by definition, doesn't give you a lot of flexibility. Uh, but you know, David Lynch is a creative man. Uh, he's he's pulled off Stranger Things before, not not the TV series, but you know, the actual you know thing. Um, and so, if, if I was going to trust anybody to to pull it off, it would be him. Well, I mean, the fact that he's involved with them, like, uh, like what Mark Frost, the uh, original producer, I'm like, okay, well, I mean, the right people are involved. Let's see what happens. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we should we should uh, get to the second item on our list today before we run out of time. All right. Okay. So uh, we're gonna start kind of a an ongoing segment for the show for the foreseeable future, uh, which has uh, everything to do about. Uh, our connection to Japan, me actually living here and Gary having lived here. And of course, you know, uh, his wife being Japanese. So he has an ongoing connection as well and uh, visits on a regular basis, <clears throat> which, uh, you know, the first rule of, of Gary visiting Japan is we don't talk about Gary visiting Japan. Although I guess we should just go ahead and suspend that rule because it's, it's, it's silly. We are not Jimmy Kimmel live. So yeah, a little bit, a little bit autobiographical here. I've, I came here, a uh, Gary and I coming here was a very interesting uh, experience because uh, it had such auspicious qualities. Uh, we both left from Kansas City, Missouri uh, on the same plane on the same day. And I think we were even like chatting in line uh, as we were waiting to board the plane. Yeah, I remember that. 
And then we meet up and we arrive on the other side in Tokyo. We didn't sit together, but we all wound up in the same hotel room. It was you, me, and Tony, and uh, which was the 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 beginning of great things. And so um, it, and, it turns and out that was the case. That was the Keio Plaza Hotel in downtown Tokyo in Shutsuku. And holy crap, that's an amazing hotel. Yeah, I mean, it's like it, it, we were in one of the crappier rooms and it was probably $500 a night. Yeah. Uh, so they, they did not uh, spare any expense for us. Uh, so anyway, the reason why we all got booked together turns out was because of uh, our geography so since we were all getting shipped off to osaka they basically i think they they bunked everybody up based on where they were heading uh which worked out for us and by like i said by strange coincidence we all ended up sharing the same room so it was very cool and then of course uh we got to meet up with your friend joe and hit the town and uh then a few days later uh, we all head off to osaka and i've been here ever since so i we started on something called the, the JET program, which is J J uh, Japanese uh, Education and Teaching. Wait, am I getting that right? It's been so long. I, I, I just say the acronym. Don't think about what it means. J uh, no, Japanese Exchange and Teaching, uh, which uh, I think we were kind of really the last group of what you might call the golden age of the program. Because after that, it started getting like the government started trying to, to not the government itself, but like prefectures started kind of abandoning it in favor of, of private companies. Uh, which is a whole other problem. But I managed to stay on not just for the initial three years. I got to also be an elementary school teacher uh, for uh, also as part of the, as a special extension of the JET program for two more years. And then I got hired by the uh, Osaka Board of Education as what they call a NET, which is a native English teacher. And um, I was very lucky because for basically for, uh, what do I say? As a as a well paying job for what is essentially unqualified labor, I mean, you're teaching English, and you're the criteria being is that you have a bachelor's degree in anything, and you be a native speaker of English. So, it's the best job you can get in Japan without actually having to know how to do anything. And I I, I won't like you know sugarcoat sugarcoat it, but um, I did do my best. So anyway, one thing led to another, and I'm still here. And then a couple years ago, I. You know, I, I got married and my wife said, hey, you've got this movie kicking around that I, I really like and really want to see you finish. And I also uh, kind of like dated you and married you on this the concept that you were some kind of creative person and not just a part time teacher. So uh, get on it. And so she's uh, basically has been uh, wearing the pants in the family while I try to get all this stuff uh, together. Weird, long, twisting road. Hello. <laughs> Comments, I'm, thoughts, I'm responses. Totally with, I'm telling with you. Um, I'm. I don't know what to say uh, other than well, the long twisting road is usually the road best traveled, right? Well, fair enough. I or, mean, um, yeah, worth traveled. Yeah, it's been interesting for me uh, because uh, I had already lived in a foreign country, being Germany, uh, first as an exchange student, and then I went back in college for a semester. And so I didn't, I felt like I didn't walk in with the typical, uh, what do I want to say? There, there's, uh, Japan is exotic, don't get me wrong, but there's a certain, uh, people tend to, uh, 
think that certain things uh, that happen to them while living in Japan are unique to Japan, whereas they're really just unique to living in a foreign culture. So I I think it kind of uh, gave me a little bit of a perspective that um, maybe, you know, a lot of people coming to Japan don't necessarily have. And I think it was a good thing. So in other words, I can separate the what's real from what's not as far as like this really is Japan just being Japan. and, And this is just, you know, the same crap different day that you would find in any other country. So, um, so like I, I have a business level Japanese. It should be much better than it is. And it sucks because my German is native level. So I, I hold myself to the standard of, well, I've done this before. I should be able to do it again. And I put it down to, uh, sheer laziness and, uh, a different perspective. And that, you know, when you go in high school and you're, uh, exchange student you've got a lot more motivation and a lot less stuff that you have to be responsible for whereas when you're an adult uh you actually not only just coast more but you know you've actually got other things that distract you from the uh the, let's say the necessary determination to master the language and despite the fact that japan really has an inexcusably horrible level of japanese or sorry english proficiency um you can get by uh, with less uh, Japanese than you think you would. And I guess living in the city really helps. If you live in the countryside, I'm sure there'd be a lot more pressure out of necessity to really master the language. Oh, there there would definitely be. I, I kind of butted up against that when I was in college. But uh, I want to speak to uh, your statement in that um, it's important. If you want to live in Japan it's, and you're a non-native speaker, it's really important to understand the language and keep in mind that Japanese is like maybe one of the most difficult languages to learn. Their grammar is really like really specifically like almost, it's like almost like algebra. Can I, can I actually, can I, can I interject a, a linguistic uh, little bullet point here? Go um, for it. Okay. Japanese is specifically really hard to learn if you're a native English speaker, which is also why they have a hard time with learning English because mm-hmm. Japan or Japanese grammar is what we call a uh, strongly left branching uh, grammar and English is weakly right branching. And the upshot being is, is that we, we find it mutually difficult to understand. The good news is if you've already learned a language such as a romance language or even German, uh, German, for example, has more of that left branching structure. So for me, I honestly, the grammar never bothered me. And the good news is, is that once you do get a handle on the grammar, regardless of your language background, it's super structured. So as you were saying, the algebra thing, it is, it is uh, almost boringly formulaic in other words the good news is is that once you once you figure out the pattern it's always that pattern whereas english is just all over the map so if you're a native english speaker you should proud of yourself because it's also one of the hardest languages in the world to learn yeah but on that said um the reading writing portion of it is a whole different animal Uh, yeah and that's that's where currently I fall down and, and it really is the, it's the kanji and the reason why I've been so lazy about learning it is because it's tedious there is no trick to it you it, just memorize well, it until it, you know it, it it's it's both tedious but it's also inconsistent oh yeah there's that the, too 
Yeah, the the kanji for one, that horizontal line, that singular horizontal line has eight different possible pronunciations. Just that's say. true. Yeah. That well, and there yeah, we can we can get all into the historical reason. The quick version being that Jap Japanese didn't originally have a written language, so they sent an envoy over to the Chinese court back in the day to basically learn culture and manners, and they brought the kanji back with them. And during subsequent visits over, I kid you not, over the centuries, each time, they, because they are Japanese, they would dutifully write down all of the new pronunciations for the same stupid characters. So, and I'm not saying that to be, I'm being irreverent, I'm not being disrespectful. Um, so, they would say, oh, the Chinese pronounce it this way now, so we will too. It's like, guys, 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 no, it's cool. But that this is a, this is a very, uh, almost an endearing trait in Japanese culture and very if you if you can appreciate this you can appreciate the people as well they take that sort of thing very seriously which actually also uh, feeds back into if you want to come to japan and you want to make a if you want to make friends just if you make an honest effort even if it's a if it's a, a rife with mistakes to speak the language they're going to open up to you because they're going to be like, well, this guy actually gives a damn. He's not just being the, the ugly foreigner who thinks everybody speaks English. Yeah. Surprisingly, if you try really hard to communicate in someone else's language, you'll be surprised how well they are going to open up to you. And that goes kind That's of a universal like, thing, isn't it? Yeah. Right. For anywhere. I, I like, I like ran into, um, um, some programmers on our, in our company who are from Ukraine, they largely speak Russian. I had like one dude in our, he's, he was from Spain. He actually like learned a little bit of Russian and he like, you know, hit him up at the bar and they're like, holy crap. Like you went out of your way to speak a really difficult language. Which Russian is like pretty difficult to speak. Um, you know, coming from like an English standpoint, like the pronunciation is kind of hard. The grammar is kind of like a little bit wild west. But anyway, if you can do that, though, um, they were like, wow, like we really like aren't just impressed. We're really kind of like taken aback. I'm like, oh, we're not used to this. So, you know, take that for what you will. Sure. OK, so um, but OK, so that's kind of like uh the cliff notes version of you know where we are as far as like how we got to japan um and a little bit about the culture but um people might actually want to know okay first of all if i want to go to japan how do i get there uh getting there i will be in a, uh, like another another episode seriously is that involved like you're talking about like now the question is is this just are you talking about for a visit or is this person this is a speculated person moving there what are they doing uh visit just visit. a visit i like i i get like about four or five people per year ask me like hey you've been in japan you live there i'm like yeah like i'm going there for a vacation what do i do I'm like well do you have a flight yeah like i uh nothing but i really want to go what do i do Okay, I guess you could start, start up with the first first would be favorite airline, because you know the, not all airlines are the same, and not all airports are the same. Now, if you're we can only speak to coming from the United States, we can't speak to other places around the world. I mean, well, I can speak to Germany. That's about it. 
<laughs> so uh, we can, we'll do this. It'll be a U.S. Japan experience. Yeah, uh, North American ex- uh, Japan experience. Um, honestly, if you can get on a flight all the way through from your your origination to your destination, Japan, on ANA, that's the one they go. Right, but keep in mind that they ride share, or I guess flight share, is it ride share, with uh, United? That's true, that's true. And they are not as groovy. They are not as great. Yeah. And one of the sad things is if if you're me and you're coming to Osaka, uh, you should also keep in mind, uh, now I would recommend Osaka not just because I live here, but because it's really... Uh, we'll, we'll get into more depth later, but it's uh, it's basically uh, sits next to a lot of other great places. It's the breadbasket of culture in Japan. and But you want to avoid changing planes as much as possible because layovers suck. Now, the good news is the layovers between the United States and Japan are usually pretty short. I mean, almost ridiculously short. Um, Matter of fact, the last time I went to America, I was running between planes, which is because the, the plane was late. But man, they they will not wait for you uh, on the connecting flight, so you, you got to hustle. Um, my yeah, A and A is my favorite. Uh, I also would say if you're going to fly out of an airport, uh, Denver for me is a favorite because uh, here's the thing: like an airline such as Air United, they're going to task a particular plane to a particular route. And the brand new shiny plane is the Dreamliner. And the De- the Denver to Tokyo uh, plane, or I should say specifically Denver to Narita airport plane, is the Dreamliner, which is fantastic. Because otherwise, I mean, if you go like, for example, uh, there was one time I randomly, I think I went through Houston. Was it Houston? And uh, it was it was not as fun. It was, it was an old janky plane and it was kind of crappy. Zing. Um. So my personal experience, um, I've flown out of a whole lot of airports uh, over the past 20 years to go to Japan. I've flown out of O'Hare, um, Detroit, Metro Wayne County, um, let's see, uh, San Francisco SFO, uh, LAX, uh, SeaTac, and... Um, and and DFW, yeah, those the I think those are all the big ones I've flown out of, like direct flight from this airport to Japan. So um, obviously, if you're on the West Coast and you're in the United States or North America, flying on the West Coast is going to be a little bit easier because okay, well, if you're connecting, we land this airport, uh, deplane, uh, decompress a little bit. Oh shit, we gotta go on this other plane and you're gonna be on there for about if you're going to Tokyo, it's gonna be about a nine and a half hour ride. Yeah, and you're also actually that's with the tailwind with you. And the thing on the on the way back it's gonna be longer. So it's almost twelve hours on the way back. Yeah, but you're gaining time all the entire way. It's weird. Oh yeah, you also get to cross the international dateline and all the other fun stuff. The one sucks, I have to say going to Japan stinks because that that annoying feeling that you've lost a day. Yeah, you end up leaving on a Wednesday and arriving on a Thursday. You and the the weird thing is the clock doesn't move that much. So yeah, if, if you've never flown internationally uh, uh, that far, it's it's quite the trip, uh, mentally, you know, figuratively speaking. Because uh, I always I always find it fun flying back to America because uh, the reverse is true, where you gain a day. So literally, you leave. You may end up leaving uh, Tokyo 
at 11 in the morning and you arrive in America at 10 in the morning on the same day, which is like, oh, this is really like time travel. It's so cool. But then, of course, you have to give it all up when you go back and you go, oh, well. Yeah. But uh, Oh, and uh, as far as like um, choice of airports, if you can fly, like I said, if you can, if you're he heading south, if you're heading for, say, Osaka, I, I recommend flying into Osaka, if you can get a direct flight, again, it depends on the airline because it's a really nice airport and it's really straightforward to get out of. Whereas if you end up flying to um, Narita, which you probably will end up doing, uh, going from the international to the domestic flights is a bit of a pain in the butt. Uh, and also it has the distinct disadvantage of requiring you to bus out to the plane, which I always just really hate. It's like, ugh, you know, you're, you're already feeling gross and... You know, uh, like you need a shower and then you end up having to uh, get onto a bus just to be, you know, get back onto another plane. So it sucks. But again, if it's ANA, it's at least worth it because a domestic plane, regardless if you're an economy or otherwise, is just going to be fantastic. Um, and I, I want to say also uh, speaking to traveling within Japan, like once you get there, I don't I personally don't find the 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 uh jr tra train pass really to be that it doesn't i don't feel like it recommends itself that much yeah the 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 like the the whole jrl pass is kind of like well we're the amalgam of or the analog of um the the whole URL thing and actually that's not it um we did the math on this like like the last three times with Miami, I went to Japan. We like did the math and like, okay, should we get the rail pass? Should we get the rail pass? And we did the math and we're like, actually, no. It doesn't work out. Yeah, it doesn't work out because eventually you're going to hit a, a whole slew of rail that is not JR approved. So we, people should be aware that in Japan, there's uh, two levels two levels is not the right way there's two networks of rail systems one is japanese railway which is jr and that is the one everybody thinks of that's the one with the bullet train and it's one of the things that makes japan famous um and it is i want to say it's is it government run is it quasi private how does that work i think it's government run is i think it's quasi private okay it's definitely subsidized because it's one of the things that keeps the price down which is great then there's a whole network of private railways and that, in other words, owned by privately owned companies. For example, in our area, we have Kintetsu, we have uh, uh, Keihan, we have Hanshin, and you don't have to memorize all the names. This is not the point. The point is, is that if the rail pass doesn't only covers JR, there's a whole lot of places that you're not going to be able to get to without having to go ahead and buy an extra ticket anyway, which means you really haven't saved yourself a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, you haven't saved yourself any money and you really haven't saved yourself a lot of trouble either. And this is only compressed if you go to Tokyo. In other words, you kind of, what you mean? It sucks. It sucks in uh, a lot more in a smaller amount of time. Yeah, basically, if you're in Tokyo and you're like want to go long distance, you, if you buy the JR, the JR pass, you're good. But if you want to like travel around on the subway to go from point A to point B to point C in Tokyo, um, yeah, you're not going to see any savings. Yeah, what would be really what you really need to do? Well, first of all, just map out where you're going to go because it really isn't that onerous. All the signs are going to be written in. Uh, I'm not going to say English, it's in, in Romaji, which is, you know, the, the local 
uh, lingo for written in the Roman alphabet. So you're going to be able to read all the signs. And also in cities like Osaka, they've also they uh, they offer maps for for tourists where they don't even bother like you don't even have to worry about the station name. All the name all the stations are are helpfully uh, lettered and numbered in a code. So you're like, oh, station A six. That's where I'm going. Okay, cool. And the other thing is is that they are trying to move to uh, a ticketless system uh, for you know people living in Japan as well. And so they offer things like the Suika card and the uh, in, in Osaka, the Ikoka card. Now, I believe those are connected to... Actually, no, they're not even connected to a credit card. So the beauty of it is, is that you can, for example, if you're in the airport, if you can go to information and say, I want to buy such and such a card, they may actually have it. They apparently have it in Haneda Airport because I'm looking at the... Oh, from the terminal to the station, they actually show a map going from the airline arrival lobby to the, I guess in that area is the KQ line, and it shows where the ticketing machines are. So what you do is you can go in there and get somebody to help you and just buy. I can actually post this. I'll post this in the show notes as an as an example. But I a chargeable a chargeable debit card. I, I'm speaking redundantly, but the point is is that you can then just. Um, Charge it up with, say, the local equivalent of, of 100 bucks, you know, 10,000 yen, and and just go. And uh, the nice thing is, is that they're cross-railway compatible. And that was the key I was trying to get to in a very roundabout way. And then, you know, also, know, the beauty of it is, is that the the, the, the Japanese rail pass will be a, a one-time, uh, you, you pay a lump sum, and it's good for a certain amount of time, and that's it. And you're, you're out that money. And it, I did the math, and as you said, it's like you have to ride like for 14 days every single day on JR for it to really pan out. Whereas if you do this, you pay exactly what you need to. And the beauty of it is you can just take that card home. And if you end up coming back to Japan, you can just plug it in and use it again. Good to go. Yeah. Just, just fill it back up and you're good to go. Um, yeah, precisely. Um, if you buy the JR pass and you're planning on taking a trip, by bullet train to go from like Tokyo to all the way down to like the like to like Nagasaki and then back again and then maybe up to like Wellam to Tokyo region it that's going to be good value for your money but if you're not if you're planning like I'm going to go to Tokyo and maybe Kyoto um yeah yeah that you're better off than just like paying per diem basically yeah so actually that's, that's a good point it, it, the J japanese rail uh sorry let me say jr the jr card is designed for somebody who literally wants to just cross the entire country and in that case uh it might it might work out but again if you if you have a specific goal in mind uh I think you can, you're, even even though it's a foreign country with a foreign language you've maybe never encountered before, I think you're actually better off, especially with online resources that we have now, mapping it out ahead of time, which you really should do regardless because, hey, it's nothing more fun than being in a foreign country and unexpected things happening. Having a plan is is really, you know, forewarned is forearmed kind of thing. If you're going to uh, play, plan your at ahead of time, um, unless you're going beyond like Honshu, yeah, just just stick with just like the local train stations. Just like get yourself like one of the IC cards, pay money into it. Um, generally, at this point, I think like the Ikoka and Kansai and the Suika, 
outside, like kind of like pretty much like, yeah, they're pretty much all commingled. They're universal. So, they work with the subway. They work with, uh, yeah, pretty much everything. Um, yeah. I mean, hell, if you go to like 7-Eleven, you like want to buy a couple of like, you know, magazines and like maybe some Pocky, they'll, they'll take either or as currency. Right. Actually, you know, I, I yeah, I was going to say that's, wait, they'll take as currency where now? Run that last one part by me again. Uh, 7-Eleven. Seriously? You can actually use your Eagle card to pay? Dude, last time we were in Japan, we like, I like, like strolled up into like 7-Eleven or Lawson's or whatever and like bought like, like a Manju and like a copy of like a Find Me Too and they're like, okay, it's going to be like 780 yen. I'm like, boop, like whipped out my like, like wallet with my Eagle Caught in it and like hit it on their little IC transfer station. They were like, yeah, done, done transaction. I'm like, woo. People should keep in mind that it's a, it's a, it's a based on the, um, I always forget what that's called. Um, not RFID. Is it RFID? Basically, it, 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 it's Japan's version of RFID. It's called Eddie. It's developed by Sony. It was a precursor to what now has become the standard. It's one of the annoying reasons why the I, Apple, uh, Apple's iPhone and, and Apple Watch have not supported the standard until the latest iterations of both. And I don't know if that's even sold internationally. It may be only the localized versions that do that. Say, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure at some point that there's some Japanese columnist who's going to talk about this whole concept and, and invoke the word Galapagos. But anyway. Yeah. yeah, actually, yeah. For people who don't know, uh, Japan recognizes that there, that there are certain... Uh, phenomena associated with be, with living on an island and being kind of isolated from everybody else and so they refer to that as the galapagos effect and uh, anyway the thing about the uh basically the that kind of a, a touchpad uh payment technology is that yeah um the, the nice thing is is that you can use those cards to pay anywhere which is, is ideally what you want to do with your you know they, they actually did it with the phones first and and now the Apple Watch and the iPhone uh, are are also available. And again, if you're an American and if those actually work in Japan, I'd sure be curious to know uh, because then the, here's the deal. the that, that IC payment system is now compatible with the Apple Watch, which means that if I went out and bought a new one, <laughs> if only, um, I would be able to literally use my watch to pay to get through uh, onto the train, which would be awesome, but I'm not going to fork out the money and I, I like my original Apple Watch just fine. Thank you. But again, that's just the problem being the, as you said, the Galapagos effect, requiring Apple to license this this stupid proprietary technology rather than just using the standard that everybody else uses. But that's a rant. Anyway, um, so the only other thing I would recommend, uh, and maybe it'd be fun to, to put it on the website so people could have a, a template to work from. Um, we'll have to like get Mayumi or, or Machiko to help us write it. But having a card that you can literally stick in your passport bag, which by the way, if you don't have one, you definitely want to have one, that has a simple message in Japanese explaining, hey, I'm lost. It, here's my hotel. Please send me or please take me there. If you ever are out and about and you just basically, for some reason, although hopefully it will never happen, but if you just basically don't know where you are or where you need to go, if you have a card that you can show to somebody on the street and they can like literally, like especially in Osaka, they'll take you there. You know, they'll point you in the right direction. So, uh, for, for people who've never been abroad before, definitely have that available. Yeah, I actually had this experience um, about 
like I think about eight years ago when we 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 commiserated at the hub in Osaka in Namba. For people who don't know, the hub is a popular um, uh, chain of uh, well, it's a it's basically a a, a a sports bar, or just a bar, bar, bar. It's basically an attempt to make like a like a an amalgam of a, a like a British Irish sort of pub in Japan for expats, largely for expats, but not not exclusively. Yeah, very popular. It's actually the first place we went when we uh, the first evening we got here, the one in, the one in Tokyo. Um, yeah, well, I mean. Part of part of the spindle was like filmed in the back room of one of these things. We got anyway, a karaoke, one of the karaoke rooms, one of the private party rooms. Yeah. So anyway, what ha- what happened was um, a couple of years ago, I think it was like 2008. Uh, you and I met at the hub in Namba, and then split, and then I got on a train, and then it was like really late. And if you're going to Japan for the first time, let me tell you, the trains stop at 11. Maybe eleven thirty. Well, it depends on the train. Now the subways stop earlier. The trains you're usually your last. Now again, it depends on where you're starting from. But yeah, there will be the the departure of the last train from say like downtown uh, will be like twelve thirty. So that's a, that. That's the absolute latest, and it depends on the train line. Yeah. So I was on not on one of those train lines, but you can expect that if you get on a train at maybe. 11, 1130, it's going to be going to its last stop. And then when it gets there, it's done. And so are you. And I think, I think Joe actually told the story of having to sleep on the platform one time when he accidentally, uh, I think he'd already had fallen asleep and then yeah. went past his stop and woke up someplace crazy like Yoshino, somewhere, somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I was in that position. So I decided uh, um, to not sleep on the you know, on the block, so to speak. I was like, okay, I looked at the map and I'm like, okay, well, I need to go like four stations that way so I can probably hike it. It's going to be a long hike, but I can hike it. And I tried to hike it and then the rain came. <laughs> and what time of year was this, by the way? Um, it was raining. August. You came in the summer, didn't you? Yeah. Okay, that's why. Yeah, August is basically, uh, well, yeah, it's it's muggy and nasty, and it's actually the tail end of the rainy season that happens between basically May to July. Yeah, but occasionally you get hit upside the head in Japan with like a, like an odd typhoon, and we did. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, so I'm trudging through rice paddies, like up to my like ankles in like mud, trying to get home. Can't find home. You're such a stereotype. Yeah, like an hour and a half later, I like turn off. I'm like, okay, I found this village. I go over. There. Oh, that's a police box. I'm like, bang on their window. I'm like, I'm sorry, sir. I hate to wake you up in like, like eleven eleven thirty in the evening, but I'm trying to get home. And they're like, kid, what the hell? Ah, uh, just uh, get out of here. And I'm like, okay, whatever. So they were like sleepy. The police box guys were like sleeping and then they, they told you to go away? They were in the fucking like futon. Like they were like snoring away. I like woke them up and they were like pissed off because I like woke them up from their slumber. I'm like, hey, I, I know I'm not like a, you know, and like a citizen, but like I'm here in distress. Help me. And they're like, eh, 
And like one guy's like point he points in a general direction, like, yeah, there's a phone over here. And I'm like, all right, these guys are not gonna be helped. So I walked out, trudge, trudge, trudge through the rain. Oh, sure enough, he's right. There's a payphone. Try to call. Can't get anyone. Oh, like, great. So I walk down the road. I found a Lawson's. Walking to Lawson's, I like, I like walk up to the kids who are man Lawson's. Like, look, man, um, you're gonna have a great story to tell your friends. Weird white guy walks in, looks like he's a drowned rat, and I'm like, I need your phone. Like, like, no, I'm not gonna pay for that phone because I have no money left. I need use your phone. And he's like, okay, sure. Like, pick it up. You know, basically dial my in-laws house and tell them and I, I'm bowing the entire time I'm telling this over the phone by the way like I am so sorry I got super lost I'm over here at like and like hand over to the guy who's like man lost and it's like where are we and he's like oh it's over here and and they're like okay we know where that is we're gonna send a taxi to come pick you up thank you I'm so sorry thank you hang up and um, I would have not gotten home if it wasn't for the dude manning the Lawson's. So shout out to Lawson's Japanese like convenience stores. Seriously, if you're in Japan for the first time, when they say convenience store, they really do mean convenience. Yeah, I mean, like, like you can you can get you can do and get everything there. Um, you can practically do your shopping there. Matter of fact, again, that's a whole other story. Um. But the short version is that uh, convenience store con- yeah, convenience stores are everywhere. Uh, they are legion, and uh, you if you need to buy a bus ticket, if you need to buy a train ticket, if you need to send something by international mail, all of the, well international mail might be a stretch, but you can definitely do regular mail. All of those things can be accomplished at the convenience store, and if you also uh, I don't know um, have a, a blowout in various undergarments uh, you can even purchase those at most convenience stores uh just in case for the uh, intrepid business young businessman i suppose but uh, anyway um so so wrapping up the uh, story about like traveling in japan as far as like uh like literally the the ins and outs of transportation um uh, again no matter where you go just just being prepared is always a good idea uh not really a big fan of the uh the jr international pass but hey if that's your thing if you just don't want to screw with it go for it you know uh but again you're going to find yourself uh still forced to pay for a lot of other train lines and then they may be half literally half of the trains that you use regardless so unless you're trying to trek from literally from north to south in one go uh it's not it doesn't really work out monetarily. It's it's mainly just convenience. And again, it, it's still not that convenience because it's not universally uh, accessible. So, uh, but um, and then I think we should finish up with uh, recommending like what time of time of year people should go. Okay, um, fall. Yeah, definitely fall. Uh, the irony being is is that Japan is famous for cherry blossom season, which is coming up very quickly. Uh, in Osaka, it's the beginning of April. But it's only three days long, and uh, cherry blossoms. Uh, the cherry blossoms themselves abruptly end with a lot of rain, which is basically probably why it only lasts three days. So you're talking about a time of year where uh, the weather is unpredictable. 
and the cherry blossoms are very brief. So you can't really plan to come for cherry blossom season unless you're going to be here for an extended uh, stay. I mean, you're talking like the good news is as a tourist, you can come for uh, three months straight up. No problem. But unless you're planning on staying for uh, a couple of weeks, you really shouldn't plan on cherry blossom season. And it's not the best time, as Gary said. I agree. The fall is definitely it. It's the sweet spot. The weather is gorgeous. Uh, it's clear. It's not as... And you got to understand, Japanese summers are nasty. Uh, if you've ever been... I, I'm from Florida. So, yeah. Florida, basically like that. Uh, if you if you raise your arms, you're going to break into a sweat. So, summer yeah. is definitely not a good time to come. Uh, and, you know, winter's just darn right... Or just downright cold. Plus... Uh, it depends like uh, also uh, fall is also the sweet spot for reduced airline rates, which is always nice. And in hotels as well, when you're in Japan, <clears throat> there are certain seasons to avoid unless you are coming for friends who are Japanese who've invited you, then knock yourself out. But uh, if you're just coming for the fun of it, uh, I'd say October, November, uh, you're missing the peak uh, holiday times and you're getting really great weather. And uh, prices will be cheaper. Uh, prices are always cheaper in February, but it's generally like the coldest month for all of Japan. Yeah, it's not terrible. Like right now, co the coldest month right now here is, of course, uh, for, for comparable to, well, as I say, having lived there, comparable to Oklahoma. Uh, it's right now, for example, it's probably around 40 degrees, which isn't too bad. Seven degrees Celsius. I'd have to do the conversion, but um, in other words, it's it's a uh, you know medium jacket weather. You're not going to freeze to death. Uh, Osaka itself is lucky to get like one or two snowfalls a year, but if you go, uh, also depends on which side of the island you're on. Uh, so if you're in, uh, it, uh, we're only a couple hours away from some seriously awesome like skiing and and snowboarding because. It's a very mountainous island and all the rain falls on one side and not the other uh, because we are on the leeward side. But again, yeah, uh, definitely go for fall. Plus you get the, okay, if you want to talk about uh, touristy things to do, the fall also gives you the added bonus of the other beautiful time of the year being the uh, turning of the leaves when all the, the maple leaves turn red. Yeah, so we, um, my wife and I just finished up uh of Japan during that time and I can tell you in in Kyoto alone that's worth a trip it's amazing it's gorgeous yeah now you will again you gotta gotta be careful because if you run into a uh, I mean maybe I'm, I'm over being over helpful at this point but um, three-day weekends at that time of year in in Kyoto specifically uh, you will it, it will be packed so uh, you know, what's the good news is what's convenient for Americans visiting will not necessarily be convenient for Japanese people visiting. So, uh, you know, uh, you can go um, online. Actually, if you have something like, uh, for example, uh, Apple offers it as a, a free subscribable calendar. I'm sure you can probably get it through Google or, or Microsoft as well. But uh, you can add a calendar of Japanese holidays to your phone. Uh, or your computer, well, through your computer, and then it'll show up on your phone kind of thing. And as a result, you'll be able to say, hey, there's a Japanese holiday on this weekend. Hmm, maybe I should plan around that. Uh, and that'll save you a lot of grief because the thing about Japanese is that when they go out, they all go out. It's 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 kind of like, you know, 
it's a little bit of a stereotype, but yeah, it's a, it's a thing. Yeah. So the uh, if you're coming to Japan, the two holidays you want to really avoid are Golden Week and Obon. Yeah. And uh, New Year's too, actually. That too. Uh, if you're if you're tempted to, if you're tempted to go on New Year's, yeah. Uh, the main problem with New Year's is basically everything shut down, which sucks. But if you're coming from North America, um, both Canadian and American Thanksgiving, there's actually no real holiday kind of celebration going on. Actually, it's a really good time to go. Yeah, that's actually a good point. And since uh, a lot of Americans, uh, and I'm assuming Canadians too, can get, uh, you know, if you're you know, typically you can get the whole week off if you're, you know, if your if your job doesn't suck. So you know, take advantage of it. Uh, if you line it up right, you can get two weekends in there, and you're good to go. And I would also say, uh, time time wise too, I would recommend the minimum you want to visit is going to be two weeks. Uh, if you can if you can pull it off, ten days if, if you're really pressed for time. Uh, both for sightseeing, like really taking advantage of it. But here's the other thing we haven't really mentioned, which is the jet lag. Now. This is a matter of, it depends on who you are. Uh, I, my stepfather, for example, swears to this day that jet lag is all in your mind, which means that I must be psychic because, you know, my jet lag is a mighty powerful thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've been to Europe and I find that, yeah, the seven hour, eight hour jet lag you experience going from America to Europe, honestly, not that bad, but the 14, 15, 16 hour jet lag you get going to japan oh boy that's a kick in the pants yeah and so you'll spend the first three or four days just trying to not pass out in the middle of the street at three o'clock in the afternoon because you have this overwhelming desire to take a nap for you know because your body's saying oh no no it's late it's it's very aggravating but uh, again you, the good news is you can get over the worst of it in a few days and then you can enjoy the rest of your time all right, guys, we'll, we'll talk more about this as we uh, as we go along. We got, of course, a ton of uh, stuff we can talk about, uh, you know, uh, based on our, our own personal experiences in Japan. Uh, and uh, as, as you said, Gary, you know, if people want to know about it, we'll be happy to tell you. Uh, it's it's definitely well worth the visit. Uh, and uh, we hopefully can, you know, make it that much more enjoyable just by... Uh, filling people in on what we know absolutely anything to wrap up um not really i think we covered everything we would do uh this episode so all right thanks for hanging in with us guys uh yeah it was uh, speaking of long and winding road uh we we definitely do uh, dove in deep on uh the Super Bowl commercials in a way I did not anticipate, but hey, you know, <laughs> that's part of the fun, right? So, uh, again, hope that uh, you guys enjoyed it. Uh, thanks for hanging in there uh, and hope you get something out of the, also this kind of like uh, post-show bit about Japan. And again, we'll be bringing more in the future. So, uh, we will see you next time and we return you now to your regularly scheduled time stream. All right. Peace out. Honjitsu wa Tobin ni gorajo itadaki, makoto ni arigato gozaimashita.